Super Talk Mississippi media production. In Mississippi, with our ever-changing weather, termites and household pests can disrupt your family life and take a toll on your home. Call Family Termite and let us help protect your home. 601-933-1014. Or reach us at www.family-termite.com. What's up on a Wednesday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. My co-conspirator, as always, is Colin Brister. We appreciate you hanging out with us on this Wednesday, October 16th edition of the Rebel Report. Hope everything is well with you wherever you are. It is almost the weekend, kind of. You're on the back half of the week. We got a packed show today. We've got Alex Miller of the Dallas Morning News and the Bath, the A&M student newspaper. Um, talk to him about the matchup. Kind of, I always got, I always find the macro situation with A&M fascinating in terms of how next year is kind of supposed to be the launching point for Jimbo. And now this year's where you really kind of lay the groundwork for that to happen, how close they are, can Kel and Mon do it. Then, of course, we also get it in the game and what it means for both teams and A&M's lack of a pass rush, Ole Miss's lack of ability to defend in the secondary, all that jazz. I thought it was a pretty good interview. He's a uh, really smart dude. Uh, always, It's interesting. He's, a, he's probably the first student reporter we've had on here, but I don't know. He's a good student reporter. I don't mean that as like a... He's good for a student reporter. It just I always look back to when I was 21, 22 and being like, I don't know what the hell I was doing. So anyway, we got that. We'll get into some Ole Miss A&M stuff, probably some NFL stuff. You had a couple of trades yesterday. Uh, we kind of slept on the NBA China thing. I don't know how much I want to get into that, but I do have some thoughts. What's up? Not much, not much. What a what a week it has been for the Washington Nationals, though, right? Like, just a week ago, they were playing to keep their season alive, and now they're going to the World Series. Yeah, they are. I mean, it, it's 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 really not that surprising, though. And in a world where the numbers tell you to go straight to bullpen, it shows that, obviously, there's a place in everything for analytics and baseball. I'm not really disputing that. But, like, starting pitching and having three horses, that kind of works, too. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you have a crappy bullpen and three horses out there. And Adelbaugh Sanchez throws seven innings of one-hit baseball. You're probably going to win a series. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's one of those things, though, where I think we can get into this in a second, where, like, there's so many different ways to win in baseball that I think you can, it, like, because, like, the t- it's interesting. The Royals won the World Series, what, four years ago, and the brand of baseball they played is basically non-existent in today's game. I mean, yeah. essentially, yeah. it just kind of changes. Like, I don't think, I don't know. It feels like in a in a, in a numbers-driven sport, and I'm not going to be one to dispute analytics and numbers, that there always kind of tells you that there's one way to do things or one general formula to follow. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that's multiple. I think the Nationals are a decent example of that. And I think the Royals and some of these other teams have been a decent example of that. I don't know. Baseball's fascinating. Um but I guess let's start kind of getting into some football. I did not go to practice yesterday. They were inside. There really wasn't much for it, me or anyone else to view. So I, um, I, I did not go yesterday. I went to interviews afterward. So not a whole lot to be gained. We had, um, we had who do we have? Dante Evans, Scotty Phillips, and Freddie Roach yesterday. So all of the pressing issues. And I, it's pretty much all the pressing issues yesterday. I kind of joked. But Dante Evans is going to have to play the entire first half, essentially. With Jacquez Jones out, we talked to Freddie Roach about being down a man with Tariq Tisdale being down. Uh, I thought it was fascinating to kind of get his perspective on the targeting thing. And I say that, I really mean Mike McIntyre on Monday 
had a really interesting take on the targeting thing. But Ole Miss is going to be down two guys in their front seven and one that's already kind of thin with some guys they have out. I'm kind of interested in, and, and I, I'll be honest, I haven't gone and listened to the interviews yet. I've been pretty busy this week. I'm kind of interested in how how different like they coach nowadays as far as you know avoiding uh, targeting and that type of thing. Because you've got to be able to coach these kids to make sure that it doesn't happen, right? Yeah, sure, but it, it and and I'm not necessarily disagreeing, but in some instances, there's just not much you can do. Like Tariqus Tisdale's was probably preventable. You can't kind of he didn't not that he headbutted the quarterback, but he went up high with his head towards the back of the end zone on the quarterback. The Jacquez Jones thing, I don't know what you're, he's supposed to do because Bryant gives himself up late after Jones is already diving, and then it just kind of happened. Like, I don't know what the defender's supposed to do there. Yeah, no, it's it's, uh, it's a tough situation. It just is what it is. Um, especially, uh, like you mentioned with Jacquez Jones, I mean, Kelly Bryant's plotting late. Like, what, what, do you, what do you even do at that point? So, um, but, you know, those guys missed the first half, and... I, I have mixed, and I don't want to get too far off at this hand. I think there should be like degrees to this. I don't think, you know, I'm, I'd probably be okay with Tariq Fisdale being suspended for half. I don't really think Jacquez Jones is, was egregious enough to get him ejected and suspended for a first half of a football game. So, this is actually a decent segue into what I was kind of talking about. On Monday, Mike McIntyre was asked about this, and he really was just asked about being without the two guys. But he turned it into, I don't want to say a soapbox, because it was actually fascinating, but it was one of those things where he was like, actually, I'm glad you asked about this, and then proceeded to go on a five-minute I mean, rant, whatever. He thinks it's basically just kind of total bullshit, for the lack of a better phrase, that Jacquez Jones, this penalty happened five minutes into the second half, and Tariqa Sisdale happens with seven minutes to go in the game, and they're both going to miss the first half of the next game, to whereas Jacquez Jones basically misses a full game where Tariqa Tisdale misses a half, and they committed the same crime. He basically was like, look, it should be like hockey. We shouldn't have a penalty box, but if you have this, stick them on the sidelines for 30 minutes of game action or 15 minutes of game action. He was like, to have two different guys serving different amount of time for the same crime makes no sense. No, I'm completely with him there. I mean, I don't, I don't think, I, it, you know, I, I disagree kind of in, in the same vein. Like, I don't think that you should, I'm with him, and that you, the same crime should get the, the you know, the same punishment. Um, but what I, I think there's, you know, different degrees of targeting, though, right? Like, you can look and intentionally, you can tell when somebody's trying to intentionally hurt somebody, and you can tell when something's just kind of an accident, too. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like some warrant ejection and some kind of don't. Some just maybe warrant a 15-yard penalty like a face mask. Yeah, whether it's different degrees or just having a penalty and you take two before you're ejected or something, the ejection on the pawn the first time it happened seems very silly to me because you're already flagging 15 yards. Like, why not make it like a personal foul thing to where if you get two personal fouls or whatever, you're ejected? Like, why not make it like that? Why eject him after the first one? I get what they're trying to teach. I'm with them in trying to make the game safer and trying to kind of ingrain in these guys' heads not to go at people's heads with the crown of your head and all of that. I'm totally on board with that. But one, the punishment system makes no sense. And two, it seems a little bit harsh to me to eject them from the game and if it's in the second half, make them miss another half of football off of one hit and one play. But to your point, maybe there can be some kind of degree degree thing there because there are different types of targeting where there's some where you're like you can't you just can't have that in the game of football 
in this modern day and age. And then their second ones like Jacques Jones, who are like, yeah, I can see why you probably threw the flag, but what's he supposed to do? Yeah, I mean, NFL, and, and I don't say this often because they're atrocious, but um, as far as officiating, but they have this right. Like, I mean, you, you, if you, if you're egregious about it, they throw you out of the game. If not, it's a, it's a unnecessary roughness, fifteen yard penalty, they, and an automatic first down. Um, and they go review it and decide on what degree that the, the, you know, the foul was. Uh, I think college should get to that, especially. I mean, you know, college teams probably. Uh, get affected by ejections much more because the fallout's probably greater. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a tough situation. I understand, you know, hey, they got to make the game safer. I get that. Uh, but I think you can do that without taking kids off the field, too. Yeah, because it really puts teams in a bad spot. And really a better example is, like, if this had happened to Ole Miss last year where they're already rolling into games with 50 scholarship dudes, it's like, hey, what do you want them to do here? Like, I get the like they got to serve the penalty, and everyone operates on the same set of rules. But like, my God, they're going to be down to like forty six able or scholarship bodies to play games. Obviously, that's not the case this year. But I imagine that happens to teams more often than not, whether it's scholarship deals or injuries or whatever. But bottom line, I guess transitioning back out of that, Ole Miss is kind of between a rock and a hard place at the inside linebacker spot. Dante Evans will pretty much play the entire half alongside Lakia Henry, maybe. I mean, you'll have Willie Hibbler some in there as well. You will have um, maybe some Ashanti Sistrunk. I don't know. But Dante Evans is probably rarely going to leave the field. And it's interesting because Ole Miss hasn't been this thin at linebacker all year. I know I'm stating the obvious there, but it's going to be interesting to watch how that plays out. Evans is a guy that the – Four two five last year really did not suit him very well. He seems to have played much better in this current system that they have in the three four. He's kind of been a like it's been a long time coming for him, I guess, to where he's kind of I mean he's kind of muddled around and floundered at some points in his career, but in what is his final season, he's played pretty good football and now he's kind of getting his chance. Yeah, yeah. Um he he's been there for a while and you know, started started the football game for before. Uh he, he's a good depth beat for old men, so um, yeah, look, it's obviously not an ideal situation. You're down, you know, Mohamed Tanogo since the Arkansas game. Uh, and now you're down another starter at linebacker. It's, it's a tough situation. And, you know, for a group that has played much better than the previous two years, it's, it's something you kind of hate to see. Um, but, you know, look, with Henry played really well. You're going to need him to play well again on Saturday. Uh, and Dante Evans, look, the four-two-five, like you said, uh, his foot speed kind of you know puts them behind the eight ball at that type of defense. Um, and I'm not exactly sure that this a three-four suits him that much better. But you know, for a half of football, look, if he's out there just not missing tackles. I think you can survive off of that too. Yeah, and I think I accidentally just mistakenly called him a senior. He is actually a junior. He had a red shirt year in 2017. I messed that up. But point being, he's been around a while. He's been around since 2016. There was a game in 2017, I can't remember which, I mean, he made four starts that year, but there was one game where they were missing somebody, and he became kind of the focal point of the week, and was just like, look, this kid's starting, he's going to have to play a lot, and that was kind of the beginning of his exposure to kind of big-time SEC football. So, anyway, I don't know. It's good that they'll have him back next year. I mistakenly called him a senior. I think I just did that because he's been around so long, but anyway... That's kind of somewhere to watch because Ole Miss was very bad against the run this week, or last week, excuse me, against Missouri. 
And number two, A&M really hasn't had much of a run game this year. They've had, you know, they were out, they were without their starting running back, who was kind of the heir apparent to Travion Williams and Deshaun Corbin. And they really haven't been able to have much semblance of a run game after that. I think they're at like 135 yards a game, but they haven't had much consistency, which has put increased stress on Kellen Mond, who outside of the Clemson game, and you'll hear Alex talk about this in a second, has played pretty well, but maybe hasn't taken the jump like most people thought. Like It's kind of one of those things where it's sometimes fool's gold, where he played really well for the last four games down the stretch last year, but... He just kind of is what he is as opposed to him making a jump to an elite quarterback. I don't know. It could still happen. But they're at 132 rush yards a game. Ole Miss really kind of needs to make Mon beat them with his arm and kind of just leave it up to the secondary as to whether they do that or not. Yeah. No, I, I think that uh, you know that'll be the emphasis. They're not going to gonna do everything within their power and not let Mon escape the pocket and you know, make plays off of broken plays, make them beat him. Like you said, with his arm from the pocket. And look, if he's good enough to do that, then Ole Miss is probably going to lose on Saturday. But if they can get after him a little bit and, you know, rough him up and, and, and make him make throws, then, you know, I think Ole Miss has a shot. But, uh, you know, they're not going to be able to let Texas A&M run for 200 yards and let Bond escape the pocket like crazy, too. I, I think if that happens, that you're going to look up in the fourth quarter and this game's not going to be in close. Yeah, and they haven't really had a ton of success with their backs this year. I mean, you had Isaiah Spiller, it's like 51 touches for 280 yards. And then you were also, and then Corbin was running pretty well before he went down. So, like, outside from that, they haven't really had guys that they've been handed the football a lot. They got Jacob Cabote, I think is how you say his last name. I don't remember from watching them the other week. But outside of him and Spiller, there hasn't been a lot of guys. Like, their backfield is definitely not as deep as Ole Miss's is. So... I don't know. I'm be interested to see how Mond does because last year was pretty much a crossroads at, for Kellen Mond against Ole Miss. He had a really poor first half when he coughs up the football, I think, in the third quarter. And you, we had a Texas guy on our radio show over the summer talk about how that was really a crossroads room where he was close to getting benched to going for Jimbo going back to Nick Starkle. At that point, and then you heard Alex talk about it in a minute. If Mond hadn't led a touchdown drive on the next drive, they really might have gone back to Starkle, and the rest of his career is kind of an entirely different story. But of course, he does lead them on a touchdown drive and played really good football for their last four games of the season after that. So, really, he was kind of at a crossroads last year, and I'm not saying that's a like that's probably not a similar case this year just because he is the guy, but. I mean, if A&M doesn't play well and loses this game, like, how do you have confidence in him being it next year when this team is supposedly supposed to launch? No, it's, it's certainly fair. Um, yeah, you, you look at a guy like him that's, you know, started since his true freshman year uh, after circle breaks his leg out there at UCLA. Um, you just kind of expect, you know, hey, this guy's eventually going to take off. Whatever reason, it, it feels like, it kind of just feels like Felipe Frank. Um, they just kind of are what they are. Um, so, look, is, is this kid good enough to beat Ole Miss? Yeah. Is he bad enough to lose to Ole Miss? I think so, too. Um, you know, we get into predictions and stuff later in the week. But I don't know. I, I, I don't feel like this, this this is a situation where you're going into this game just, just scared to death of a quarterback. Yeah, I, I, this is probably maybe a little bit better litmus test for Ole Miss because it's at home. We talked about them needing a signature win. I don't really know what to make A&M because the three games they've lost have been to teams in the top 25, and the three games they've won have come against, what, Arkansas, T- 
Texas State and something called Lamar? I know they were I know they were nineteen yards away from losing to Arkansas with about a minute and a half left. So they were I can draw they, some conclusions off of that. Yeah, they didn't play very well there, but they played decently well defensively against Clemson. Uh, Mon probably had his worst game. They were in the game against Auburn and lost. Like I don't know what to make of them. They're probably not as good as Missouri. So again, no. we talk about Ole Miss. I don't know if it's back up against the wall is the right cliche to use here. But, man, there's not really more ripe conditions for a signature win at a time where the program needs it and Matt Luke needs it. Like, this seems like kind of it. Because if you lose this game, as we talked about a little bit on Monday, like you know what the ceiling is. The ceiling becomes 5-7 and seven and 4-8 and eight is actually probably more likely, which is incredibly hard to sell because Matt Luke's about to have a new boss at some point in the next couple months. And I don't know how you sell 4-8. and eight. And at the same time, if they win this game, They've got a really good shot at going to a bowl. It makes the egg bowl gigantic. But again, like this seems like if you're going to notch a signature win against a good program in the SEC West, like this is it. Like if you don't do it now, I don't know when you're going to do it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's. I'm with you there. That I mean, if, if you don't do it now, I mean, you're starting off, and, and I don't want to delve too far into this, but your your schedule starting off next year has a chance to be. I mean, absolutely heinous. Like, you, you start off with Baylor, who, by the way, is undefeated this year. Uh, you get Auburn, Alabama, Florida, and LSU. Uh, and then you mix, like, a Vanderbilt in there. I mean, you, you got a chance starting off one in, like, five next year. Uh, or two and five, whatever. I can't remember if there's an FCS school or not. But, I mean, it, it, this game just kind of builds. And I'll be honest, I don't want to call it a must win. Um, because I don't think Matt Luke loses his job in pretty much any scenario this year. But I think it is a must-win from the simple fact that next year has a chance to start off so badly that he's going to need any sort of capital that he can get um, simply because the teams he's going to play, I'm not sure they can match up against physically. Um, so I, I, I kind of do think this weekend, is, for all intents and purposes, kind of a must-win, which, which seems crazy. But I, I don't know how you survive, frankly, Next season, like it, it, again, I think he keeps his job this year, but I don't know how you survive next year with a loss tomorrow or Saturday. Next year starts Baylor, SEMO, Auburn at LSU, Alabama. Yeah, I mean it's one and four, right? Because I don't think they're beating. I don't think they're beating Baylor. Yeah, and then you go to Vanderbilt, and then you get Florida in middle, and then you finish with A and M, Arkansas, Georgia Southern, and State. And look, I don't know what Vanderbilt's going to look like next year. I don't know who their coach is, but I do know that Ole Miss going to Nashville is not always equated to a win. So you would be coming off three consecutive losses, presumably to Auburn at LSU and Alabama, and then going to Nashville pretty much having to win the game. Yeah, and then coming home and getting a Florida team that's better than you. Yeah, so anyway, I yeah, it's obviously a long way off, a lot to play out before then. But yeah, I kind of agree in the sense that like, yeah, I mean, this is kind of put up or shut up time for Ole Miss, and I don't know necessarily how fair that is because again, incredibly well, young team, like you know, two new coordinators. Like the foundation is there, but eventually you've got to produce enough results to see out the foundation into kind of fruition. I do think it's fair to say, look, uh, since they left the field in Houston, they've lost you know, I think three games where they were slight favorites and two games where they were slight underdogs. South Carolina. Uh, last year, Vanderbilt last year, uh, Memphis this year, uh, California this year, and Auburn last year. I mean, they're 0-5 in those games where, this, you know, Vegas kind of decides they're, they're a toss-up, uh, you know, five-point line either way or so. And they've got another one, 
you know, Saturday that's it's a five-point line or so. At some point, like, you, you got to win one of those football games, right? Or I think I think it is fair to say, look, you haven't won these type games. And to, to be able to say this program's improving, this program's on the rise, whatever, eventually you got to win one of these games. And, you know, if it's not Saturday, then when is it? Yeah, I agree there. And so getting into the game a little bit, Obviously, Ole Miss, we talked to Rich Rodriguez on Monday. Uh, he was snarky, to say the least, like not in a bad way necessarily, but he was kind of like someone, the first question about quarterbacks, he was like, yeah, I told you we were going to have to get two or three guys prepared in August. You didn't believe me. You thought it was coach speak, but hey, it's not. And, um, you know, they're going to oh, give me a break. They're going to go with this two quarterback thing. I mean, he was kind of being funny about it. Like he wasn't really being an ass, but. I mean, I guess he kind of turned out to be right in some ways. And, like, yeah, Matt Corral was kind of dubbed as the guy, but I almost wonder in Rich Rodriguez's mind, because he really wanted Plumley, like, not wanted him to be a starter, but really, like, wanted him in recruiting. Like, I mean, you do have a redshirt freshman that hadn't really proven himself. I don't necessarily dis, like, I don't necessarily think what he's saying is BS in terms of his mind, because, I mean, Matt Corral hadn't really done anything. Yeah, but everyone knew going into the year. And it, look, if Matt Crowell doesn't get hurt against California, is John Wright Plumlee even playing? I don't know. Because if you, like, we, like, we, we all have short-term memory and seem to have amnesia in this kind of microwave society that we live in. But with the offense playing as poorly as it was against Cal and even the weeks before that, there were kind of some calls to see someone else. And so I don't know. What did they go get? He doesn't get hurt. They lose to Cal 28-10 or 13 or whatever it is. Don't move the ball anymore. Then get kind of smacked at Alabama. How does the Vanderbilt game go? They probably still win the game, but do they run all over them? Do they score as many points? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. It's kind of fascinating. I'm not necessarily defending what he's saying, but I do just wonder if there is a piece of Rich Rodriguez's mind coming into the year where it's kind of like, yeah, Matt Corral's going to be the guy, but like it's not. It's, we're not riding with him no matter what through these next two and three years because I do have two talented true freshmen behind him, one of which probably lends itself better to the running style of his offense because I think it's an interesting balance because I think Ole Miss kind of making Corral the face of the program and that guy was much more of a Matt Luke and a program thing than it was a Rich Rodriguez thing. Yeah. Like, I, taking him to media days and all that. Yeah. That 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 right there is why I don't think Matt Luke anticipated John Rice Plumley taking the majority of snaps by week six. Or week no, seven, I don't think either one of them anticipated that. I'm just kind of saying, like, in the back of Richrod's mind, do you think there was some part of him where, like, you know, I mean, if this goes awry, I'm going to pull the plug on it eventually. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well, I, I'm interested to see how the rest of the season plays out because I do think there's going to come a point where I don't think at some point you're going to be able to sit there and wonder about the quarterback situation. Like I, I think if this season is going to go the way Ole Miss needs it to be, that at some point you're going to have a bona fide starter and a guy that plays in some, some role-type situations. Which way that is, I don't know. But I don't think you can have, you know, I, I think that at some point within this season you're going to be able to figure out all right, Ole Miss is down by four points with three and a half minutes left. Who has the football? Like, I think at some point you're going to be able to figure out who that guy is, or I don't think this is going to go the way they want it to. Yeah, I mean, it, it probably all along, 
I say should have. Hindsight's twenty twenty. People are going to listen to this and disagree. I don't really care. In my mind, it always should have been Corral as the quote-unquote every-down quarterback with a relatively large package for Plumley. I know the injury threw a wrench in that. I know Plumley performing pretty well at Alabama, doing what he did in the last couple minutes against Cal and running all over Vanderbilt, changed things. I got that. I'm not saying they should have done that in hindsight, but in my mind, the perfect scenario here is Corral as the every-down quarterback, and you have a package for Plumley for whether it's running, whether he can throw some too. But man, they just the, the field is so much more open with Corral at quarterback. Oh, I don't disagree at all. Um, I, I think Corral should obviously be the starter, and, and Plumlee should play in, in spots and packages and that type thing. Um, he can throw the football enough to, to be able to open up the field somewhat for the running game. Um, but you know, I mean, detractors from that are going to say, "Well, Plumlee scored all or was responsible for all four touchdowns." on Saturday, and I was, yeah, I, I understand that, um, but I do think that the offense is, it clicks a little bit better with, with two back there at quarterback, but we'll see. Um, that's I think Saturday, because like, against Vanderbilt, they could, you know, do the injury thing, and then they, they play, you know, Missouri, and they fall down, and whatever. I think Saturday, they're going to be in the football game uh, in the fourth quarter, maybe even ahead, and that's where I'm interested to see how this goes, because I think that's where we'll go you know, how the rest of the season is going to unfold at that position. But isn't there a scenario, I agree with what you're saying, but it, let's think about this just a hypothetical. Isn't there a scenario, uh, the one you being, so if they're behind with three minutes left and they need a drive, don't you probably go to Corral because they need to throw it? Yeah, that's what I'd do. Okay, so flip side of that, let's just play devil's advocate here. They're up three points with five minutes left and they don't want to give A&M the football again to win the game. Do you go Plumley to run the clock out? Yeah, I mean that, that that's certainly fair. Um, so I guess that is you know a little devil's advocate. It's you know you played the situation. Um, I don't know, but I do think it's telling that if you're down four points with three and a half minutes left, who who's got the ball in their hand? It's fascinating discussion because I know we talked this into the ground, but I imagine if you're an Ole Miss fan, particularly if you have like a strong opinion in one way or another, and this seems to be mostly from people like. Like, Plumley is the shiny new toy, and I don't mean that as an indictment on the kid. Plumley's athleticism is ridiculous. The quickness is elite. Like, you have to use him. I- I'm not advocating against that, but I think people get intoxicated by his speed and he's scoring all the touchdowns and all that, to whereas, one, against Missouri, there was a reason that was happening with more frequency in the second half. I know he busted the one that got called back on the Miles Battle thing. But aside from that, he was running better in the offense, was flowing better in the second half. Like, there's a reason for that. Like, so I feel like some people get intoxicated on that. I say all that to say, if you have a strong opinion one way or another in a quarterback, I imagine this is probably driving you a little bit insane. <laughs> yeah, no, that's certainly fair. Um, because if you have a strong opinion, you just want one to play. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not of that belief. I think both should play. I think one should play a little bit more than the other. Um, I've also never believed in the in the belief that if you have two quarterbacks, you don't have one. Um, because if you have two quarterbacks that can do what you want them to do, then you you got two quarterbacks that can do what you want them to do. Um, but I don't know. It, yeah, you're right. If, if you think one should be getting the full time reps, then just you're probably going to be a little upset on Saturday at how the offense is run. Well, yeah, the two quarterback thing is like now. Stay with me here because I know nuance is lost out there amongst a lot of people. But, like, the two-quarterback thing doesn't work when you're Arkansas to where it's two guys that, yeah, are kind of different, but both 
to some degree are pretty much incompetent and you just can't decide on which one's less incompetent. That's when it doesn't work. But in Ole Miss, they offer drastically different skill sets here. And they both, look, people don't want to give Corral credit, but overall for 18, 19 years old, freshmen and redshirt freshmen have played pretty good football. And so they offer so many different things so it can work. So, yeah, I think people just kind of like label the two-quarterback thing as, oh, that can't work. Well, like, yeah, it can, but it has to be used the right way. Like, I mean, if you want to go with the NFL thing, like if the Titans were to choose Marcus Mariota and Ryan Tannehill, like that's probably not going to work because both guys are kind of borderline average quarterbacks and they do mostly the same thing, somewhat different. Rotating them, you don't really gain anything from that, whereas I think there's something to be gained from rotating them here. Did you just call Marcus Mariota average? I mean, he kind of is. I've got a lot of thoughts on that because there's. I don't think it's any accident that he's been to the playoffs and he's been a pro bowler and now he's not. Like, yeah, I think I think he's not average anymore. I think he's got beat up. Yeah, no, I think that franchise has ruined him. I, I agree with that too because I'm, wor- I'm. I say worried. I, the Titans don't really change how my day goes about. I just like following an NFL team, but. I think they're going to move on from him and have the right thing to do. Like, that's the right thing to do. But I think there's a world where if he's in a structurally sound organization that he's a starter somewhere else and it works. Do you think if maybe he's with uh, – I'm just trying to – you think if he's Dak Prescott, you, you think this works? Oh, 100%, dude. I think he's more capable throwing-wise than Dak Prescott is. And – but, yeah, but they just let him get beat up. I mean, they're paying the offensive line a ton of money to let the guy get killed. Anyway, I'm not turning this into Titans Corner right now, but back to kind of the same, but basically my overall point is, if you offer two different things, it can work, but people who are firmly in the Plumley stance or the, I haven't really seen that many people. That yeah, I haven't really, seen this guy. I, what? No, I've, I've, I have a lot of Plumley people. No, yeah, I haven't seen the guy that's firmly in the Corral stance. Right, well, which, have, which kind of signals that he's probably gotten a little bit of a raw deal here. But, like, I just think you if you actually look at it with a rational mindset, using both works and is the solution. But, again, it's probably not a long-term one. So, like, I mean, do you just kind of – it's an interesting like, – what what do you do here? Do you play two the rest of the year and then kind of assess it in the offseason? Because the issue is Plumlee's not going anywhere, and I think Corral would prefer not to, but I think he'd be more likely to move – if they didn't guarantee him anything, or I don't want to put words in the kid's mouth. I don't mean it like that. But, like, you have one of these kids, because he's playing baseball, is not moving. Yeah, yeah. John Rice probably will be at Ole Miss in two years. Regardless so of what, what do you do? Because this isn't a long-term fix, but for the short term right now, I mean, I guess. <laughs> I guess in theory for the next two to three years you can play two quarterbacks. But, like, let's get real here. That's probably not happening. Yeah, I don't think Matt Corral wants to move, but I, I don't think he's probably, you know, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think that he's opposed to it either. Um, I, I, I'm interested with that, how that plays out the rest of the year, because if it's obvious that they're going to rely on Plumley for, for, you know, the majority of the snaps, I do think there's a scenario where he starts looking around because when they, let's keep it real, uh, you got that big time of an arm, some, some power five school is going to want. Yeah, and then you got another kid coming in next year, and you've also got two coordinators that are not, like, I don't want to say not likely to stick around. You have two coordinators that will probably be more inclined to leave, particularly in Rich Rod, if the team has success, because Rich, because it's such a unique coordinator situation. So, like, say they pop off a couple wins here, and I don't necessarily think this is going to be the case, but just play along with me here. Say they beat A&M, 
they beat New Mexico State. Let's, for the hell of it, just for shits and giggles, say they upset Auburn and then beat State and go seven and five, and they kind of become the hot team that won, you know, three of its or four of its last five down the stretch. Like, and Rodriguez becomes a head coach. Then what? You're hiring a guy to probably do com- something completely different. Like, I, what do you do then? Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a fair question. Um, you know, I'd be interested. I would think they'd probably hire Will Hall at Tulane. Uh, they almost hired last year, uh, which, you know, is a similar type of offense. But, um, you know, obviously different guys, different, different types of offense. Um, I don't know. That's a very good question. I'm interested to see in, in just how, how this breaks down between, you know, Ashford and Corral and, and Plumley. And here's what, here's another thing I'm interested in. You keep running this offense with Plumley, and, and I get it. If it's working, it's working. You've got to, you know, do, do whatever off of it. I don't know how you can recruit receivers to this offense, right? And I think this receiving class coming up in the state, uh, from a recruiting perspective is really, really good. So I, I don't know how you can look a receiver in the eye and say, hey, we can't get the ball down the field, but, uh, you know, come to Oxford. I don't know how that works, you know? Yeah, I think some of that is them just being a young receiving core right now. Because I, I, I think uh, we talked about this before, and I know you agree to some extent, but like, I think the passing game would be better if the receivers were better right now because that's a two-way street. Like they're struggling oh, yeah, to get absolutely. separation. Uh, like the passing game is better if AJ Brown and all of them are still in it. Like right now, obviously. But to your point about not throwing it as frequently and all that, I think there's definitely something to that. But it would probably look a little better if it weren't a bunch of freshmen and sophomores starting. Like they really need Braylon Sanders to kind of compliment Elijah Moore. Because if you remember back to the spring game, Braylon Sanders made a couple really nice catches. He expected alongside Moore to kind of be the the kind of the guy, I guess, on the outside and be a deep threat. And he just because of that hamstring deal, he's been non-existent. Like, how does the the I guess perception of the receivers change if he's had a productive and a healthy year? No, it's certainly fair. Um, you know, and. and He's a guy that obviously they were counting on coming in this year. They were giving those spell guys and let them get the experience that they needed. And uh, yeah, he gets hurt against Memphis and just hasn't been there, uh, you know, been able to get over that injury. So it's a tough situation at receiver, but I also do say I think they've got to get a little bit more talented there, too. Um, so that's, that's why I'm fascinated in, in, you know, how they recruit, you know, uh, receivers to this offense that they kind of stick, you know, Running, the, I don't even know what you call this offense. But formerly, I'm not saying that in a negative light. I just, it's certainly a different type of offense with him in there than it is with number two. Yeah, I agree. So, I, we kind of talked that in the ground. Let's go ahead and get to the Alex Miller interview, and then I've got some thoughts on some NFL stuff, maybe a little bit of the China NBA thing, just because LeBron opened his mouth and it wasn't very enlightening. Um, so we'll get to some of that, and then we've obviously some baseball talk, some Monday Night Football and officiating talk, I imagine. But for right now, let's go to Alex Miller, preview the A&M matchup. A lot of good stuff in here, so here he is. All right, we now welcome on Alex Miller. Alex covers old, or Texas A&M athletics for the Dallas Morning News and the BAT, the Texas A&M student newspaper. I appreciate you giving us a minute of your time, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, just went through Chick-fil-A for some breakfast. And uh, it's a little it's a little cool outside, so I can't complain. Good morning. Yeah, there you go. It's kind of starting to feel like fall here finally, too. It's like last week we were in the 90s, this week we are in the 60s. Hopefully it sticks around somewhere towards the latter. This is an interesting game for, for a number of reasons. From an Ole Miss side, it's kind of one they really 
if they have any hope of getting to a bowl in 2019, it's one they have to win. A&M's a fascinating team to me because they have three losses to teams that were all ranked in the top ten at the time they lost to them, and then they have three wins against teams I would classify as fairly bad. And, of course, you know, a couple of them, you know, Texas State, you know, lower FBS to FCS schools. What's to make of Texas A&M? Sorry for the very general and subjective question. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of the kind of the million-dollar question or $7.5 million question <laughs> for Aggie fans and Jimbo Fisher's second year. Um, you know, it, it's been an interesting year. Uh, obviously, the, the build-up coming into the season was that the Aggies on paper should be better, but the record might not reflect it because of the difficult schedule. You know, they lost games to Clemson and Alabama, which pretty much everyone expected. Auburn has surprised most people, I think, and they've been a lot better than most projected. Uh, Bo Nix has been pretty solid for them, aside from that game against Florida. But, you know, A&M on offense, they they really haven't found a run game at all this season. They're starting running back, Jason Corbin, went out in the second game against Clemson. He's done for the year with a hamstring injury. Coming into the year, they lost their second-string running back, a former five-star recruit, Vernon Jackson, who's about 6'3", 240. So two games in, I mean, before the, the season even started, they were out their backup guy who was supposed to be the bulldozer, and then they were they were out with the guy who was heir apparent to Travion Williams, who led the league in rushing last year. And that's really put a lot of pressure on Kellen Mond and those receivers. And Adam's offensive line really hasn't gotten a whole lot better. I will say the defense collectively has been better, but there's no pass rush that's been consistent. A&M does not have a ton of sacks. There's not a true threat off the edge. But the good thing for the Aggies is that their pass defense has been better, aside from last week against Alabama. But I don't think anybody's going to be able to guard two in those receivers. I mean, they are so good. So... It's about what people have expected, minus the loss against Auburn, which most people thought the Aggies would take care of. But like I said, I think Auburn's been a lot better than pretty much anybody could have foreseen. Yeah, Corbin was about was going to be my next question. People talk about Kellen Mond a lot and whether he's regressed or not this year. And admittedly, given the time slots of the way the games have fallen, I really haven't gotten to watch A&M very much. I caught a tiny piece of the Alabama game. I watched their game against Arkansas. And some of against Clemson, but but not a ton. How like has the loss of Corbin contributed to that too? Because obviously any quarterback without a consistent running game is going to feel a lot more stress. You know, but his numbers on paper, at least, I mean, sixty three percent of his passes completed, twelve touchdowns, four interceptions, doesn't appear to be turning it over a ton, sacked fourteen times. Where is he compared to where I know people towards the end of last year? probably thought he was going to take a jump. Has that happened? What have your impressions been of him through the halfway point of this season? Yeah, you know, Kellen has just been a gamer. I mean, he's kept the Aggies afloat in so many situations, and a lot of the criticism has fallen on him, and a lot of that's stemmed from just the poor start he had against Clemson. He, in the first quarter, was making errant throws. He missed a couple of receivers. One of them probably would have gone for a touchdown had he hit him on the first drive of the game which would have been a huge tone sitter on the road against Clemson. That stadium was just popping that day. But, you know, Kellen, he's had his moments. There were a couple of games where he struggled throwing 
interceptions in the end zone, namely against Arkansas, that kept kept the Razorbacks in the game. A&M was about to go up two scores, and then Arkansas catches a t- uh, an interception in the end zone. But, you know, Kellen is such a competitor. I mean, that dude is so level-headed. He takes all the criticism on himself. But A&M's issues are more than him. You know, I don't think Kellen will ever be a championship quarterback, but he's definitely not a guy that is underachieving by any means. Um, you know, he kind of made the bold claim in the offseason that he's the best quarterback in the SEC. He hasn't lived up to that, but he said it. He had to go and prove it. And he's done as much as he can to try and prove it, but it just hasn't come to fruition. A lot of that stemmed from, too, like you said, they, they, don't, they don't have a strong running game. And because A&M doesn't have that, they're really, it seems as if they're hesitant to really run him. He has taken a beating. I mean, he came into yesterday's or Monday's press conference with a wrap around his knee. He kind of limped off the field against Alabama when they played Clemson. He got scratched up all over his face, getting sandwiched by two defensive tackles, bleeding down the left side of his cheek. I mean, he has taken it, but he has continued to stand in there and compete and give it his all through the end. And if you're Jimbo Fisher, that's all you can really ask for from the quarterback. He, and Jimbo will tell you, too, he'll, he asks more from his quarterback than any other player on the team. His trajectory is interesting because I remember at that Ole Miss game last year in College Station, he was kind of at a crossroads, it seemed like. Like, I, I don't pretend to know A&M anywhere close to guys like you who covered them but it seemed like during the maybe it was like second third quarter he was playing pretty poorly and perhaps was maybe getting close to getting benched and then had a really strong second half and that appeared to be a launching point for him is that accurate at all like did you kind of see that similarly last year because I know that was an early November game but it seemed like the way he played in the second half really kind of solidified things when that could have gone sideways fairly quickly Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's the turning point for Kellen, and that's really the turning point for the Aggies, too. I mean, when he, caught, when he coughed up the ball and Ole Miss ran it back for a touchdown to take the lead, and that, that next drive, if Kellen doesn't lead the Aggies to a scoring drive, particularly a touchdown drive, I mean, it's a very real possibility that Nick Starkle takes over the offense yet again. And Kellen went back, took him downfield, scored a touchdown. The Aggies end up winning the game. Rebel fans probably don't like to recall. <laughs> but, yeah, that was definitely a turning point for Kellen and definitely a turning point for the Aggies. Over the last four games that a played last year, Kellen had, I want to say it was about 14 touchdowns to one interception. Um they, they, they won four straight games to end the season, and that included the win over LSU. They blew out NC State in the bowl game, and so that was kind of a launching pad most people thought of. Hey, Kellen finished the season pretty strong. I mean, he had some help. He lost guys like Travion and Jay Sternberger at tight end, but there was a lot of hope and a really positive momentum heading into this season about where Kellen's potential would be. So, yeah, that, that was definitely a turning point for him. You go into this year, and you mentioned the schedule and all of that. And, to, you know, it's interesting. We had one of the Texas Ags guys on our radio show during SEC Media Days, and he was talking about, wow, how this team's probably still a year away that you mentioned earlier because it's a lot of sophomores and juniors that are presumably going to be back next year. And, and next year's when they 
kind of take flight. But in terms of like a macro perspective, what do they have to do this year to give people or the fan base or whatever kind of faith that that launching point is going to happen next year? Because I know it's been kind of up and down. That's probably mostly a product of the schedule aside from the Auburn game. And I know they didn't look very good against Arkansas. But, like, what has to happen down the stretch here for people not to start getting restless as irrational college fans do with, you know, Jimbo and the contract and all of that? Like, how do they need to finish the second half of this season? Well, I'll tell you this. And it's 3-3 three and three right now. they still got to go on the road to play Georgia and LSU to close the season. If a and gets ball eligible, a bowl game is definitely not a guaranteed win. In my opinion, they've at the minimum, have to go 7-5, and five, and they've definitely got to be competitive against Georgia, definitely competitive against LSU. You know, with everything that has stemmed from that game against the Tigers last year, they are going to come blazing guns against the Aggies at home this year, especially if it's a night game in Death Valley. That's, that's a death sentence for the Aggies, potentially, especially with how well LSU is playing. But at minimum seven and five, and it's really intriguing too. You know, Ole Miss is kind of a game that's creeping up on the Aggies. Probably not one they thought would be coming into the season. Mississippi State has by far underachieved, uh, and then it gets weird because you know A&M then plays UTSA, which is a power or a, a group of five game that they should win. But then then they get a bye week. They play South Carolina, who just beat Georgia last week, and then they play Georgia, who it, you can't get. It really doesn't seem like anybody can get a feel for South Carolina or Georgia. I mean, South Carolina they played pretty competitive against Alabama. Then they beat Georgia last week. So it, it's all up in the air, and it's going to be a dogfight every week. And it, and it starts this week. And this is going to be a big one for the Aggies. This is only their second true road game of the season. Uh, it's a night game. Ole Miss has a lot riding on the line. Like you said, they really need to beat the Aggies in order to keep their bowl hopes alive, especially with how they're scheduling with Auburn, LSU, and then the Egg Bowl on the road. So, you know, 7-5 and five is a must. If the Aggies lose this week, there are going to be some meltdown threads on the online channel. <laughs> I can guarantee you that. Yeah, it's interesting because Ole Miss is really kind of at a crossroads as well because they're at a point where – the front end of their schedule didn't lend them any favors because they have two new coordinators. They have a team littered with 18- and 19-year-old kids across the board. I think going into that Missouri game, like 15 out of the 20 touchdowns they had scored this season were by freshmen. And really, in order to kind of make their hay and get to a bowl game, they had to go 3-1 and one in the month of September, and really that meant beating two out of the three Memphis, Arkansas, and Cal. And, of course, they lost to Memphis and Cal, so they were really kind of behind the eight ball. So this is really kind of a last stand for them because they're not beating Auburn on the road, barring something crazy. And then LSU's really just in a different stratosphere. So if Ole Miss doesn't win this game, like five and seven's the ceiling. And for Matt Luke, five and seven, I guess you could kind of sell four and eight. You definitely can't sell. I don't know what he's going to do in that regard. So it feels like a really kind of a game where their backs are up against the wall and they've kind of got to show results despite the fact I really do think they're improving. They have an unorthodox quarterback system. They have John Rice Plumley, who clearly is very dynamic with his feet. But then they go back to Matt Corral some last week because Plumley really just doesn't offer enough in the passing game to for opponents to really expect expect much or respect it. Excuse me. 
and I mean, you saw it last week with Missouri. As soon as Plumlee came in the game and was the starter, Missouri went single high safety. They had seven in the box. Plumlee just doesn't complete passes enough consistently. Then they kind of go with the two-quarterback thing, which seemed to work, I thought, pretty well. They were just kind of chasing the game and the scoreboard at that point. I guess I say all of that to say, like, how do you think A&M will kind of fare defensively against this very unorthodox approach? Like, do you think that the – like, which which quarterback, I guess, do you think would give A&M more problems? Is it Plumlee with his feet, or is it Corral kind of being able to throw a little better? Because as much crap as Corral gets sometimes for not developing or whatever, and people kind of forget he's 19, he's thrown the ball a lot better than he gets credit for. Which one do you think would kind of lend itself to be a more difficult challenge for the way the A&M defense is constructed? Well, you know, it, it, it's definitely a unique approach, and it sounds like Ole Miss is just going to throw the kitchen sink at A&M, given they're in desperation mode almost, and that could be a recipe for disaster for A&M. Um, you know, Plumlee's definitely interesting. A&M's had its troubles in the past with running quarterbacks. I mean, Nick Fitzgerald looked like a Heisman candidate all three times he played the Aggies, so... There is that kind of history where A&M's had an issue with kind of bigger, run-oriented quarterbacks that can just tuck the ball and run. Um, and you saw last week, Tua really exposed the A&M secondary, although him and those Alabama receivers, they're in a whole other league of, them, of their own. But it, it'll, be, it'll be interesting, too, just like, you know, it, it's so difficult to game plan for two quarterbacks, especially when it sounds like Ole Miss is definitely going to use them. You know, that was kind of a big thing that helped Arkansas was that when Nick Starkle went down in the second quarter, Ben Hicks, their backup, who has starting experience in his SMU, like, all-time leading passer, he came in and led them down for a touchdown score on his first drive and really kept them afloat. Now, obviously, that's a little different because A&M was expecting Starkle the whole game, but still, having a game plan for two different guys that are two completely different players that's going to be a challenge for A&M. I wouldn't be surprised if Plumlee can get some good yardage on the ground. But then you throw in Corral, and it makes, makes the whole defense have to shift their mentality. If they, can, if they can get some plays downfield, I think I read a stat. Ole Miss has had 11 runs of 30-plus yards this year. I mean, it's going to be those big plays that A&M's going to have to limit, which is something that Arkansas did well to keep their offense alive throughout the game. They got a handful of big plays that really sprung drives into the opposite field. So that's definitely going to have to be Ole Miss's approach this Saturday. What's kind of the strength defensively and what is kind of the weak point? Because for Ole Miss, aside from last week, they had been pretty good against the run. And have really, their secondary has given them all sorts of fits, whether it's tackling against the run or obviously defending the pass. I mean, they had a kid from Cal – Chase Garbers, who was a fairly limited guy, set four career highs against him. You know, Tua did what Tua kind of does with those receivers. It's hard to indict him for that. But when Ole Miss has really struggled, it's when the secondary has played poorly. And to their credit, after being one of the worst defenses in college football last year, aside from last week, their front seven has actually been pretty good. Where does A&M kind of find its strength defensively, and, and what has kind of been what's held them up? You know, on defense, they've been pretty sound all the way through. Um, there's not any like glaring weak spots other than the pass rush. That's that's got to be that's got to be the weak spot of A&M's defense is that they're just not hitting home with the quarterback, which is is really limiting A&M and not having to force the opposing offenses into a lot of down and distance situations. 
I would say the strength is probably in the front seven with the run defense. I think A&M's allowing about 115 rushing yards a game, and that's kind of gone up that last week against Bama and um, Najee Harris. He got about 60 yards in the fourth quarter, so I think he. I think they ended the game with about 130. Alabama did. So I'd definitely say the strength is in the front seven, but also the weakness is in the front seven, which is an odd paradox, but it's true. And so I think A&M can probably be strong against Ole Miss's running attack, especially the quarterback. They'll, they'll get theirs. I'm, I am certain of that. But A&M's got to figure out something to get the edge rush going or else they're just going to be in trouble all season because it has not been there at all. It's interesting talking about A&M because they're a much more fascinating team from kind of the macro big picture perspective than kind of game-to-game basis because as I keep going back to they talk about 2020 being the launching point, I know Jimbo's got a quarterback committed in this next class. Does he think – you mentioned he asked them, the quarterback, to do a lot in his system. Do you think, like, if this team does take off next year and, you know, they start performing like a program that's paying their coach, you know, $75 million or whatever – I mean, do you think it's probably Mond, or do they look in the grad transfer market? Like, if if this continues on the pace it is next year, do you think Mond is capable of kind of leading that launch? You know, I would say so, only in regards to that. Jimbo Fisher, Jimbo Fisher's offense is so complex. I mean, I think I think that there are quite a few guys that have a hard time grasping all of this. And maybe that's hindered A&M at times last year and this year. The learning curve is so big that it takes a really special, disciplined person to fully entrench themselves in that and to be able to run it at its full capacity. And Kellen has just been very diligent. He's, as Jimbo would say, a student of the game and really just puts himself into all of that and has really taken hold of it. I think that's a big reason that A&M didn't abandon ship in some situations and go to Zach Calzada, who is their freshman quarterback right now and has emerged as the second-string guy as a true freshman. And they've got Haynes King coming in next year. He's a state champion from Longview, son of of the head football coach over in Longview. And so... Obviously, the pedigree's there and the experience is there being the son of a head coach, but this is a completely different ball game. I mean, from the standpoint of it's SEC ball, and not even to mention the fact, Kellen, Kellen will be a senior. Anum hasn't had a senior quarterback since Ryan Tannehill in 2011. I mean, that's almost an entire wow. decade. So, veteran experience plus understanding Jimbo's offense. And building a rapport with guys like at receiver with Jamon Osmond and Courtney Davis and Kendrick Rogers, you know, it, it's all the little intangibles that lead me to believe that Kellen will be the starter in 2020. But don't tell me wrong; I it wouldn't shock me if Jimbo gives a couple other guys a chance to at least show what they've got if that's the case. It sounds like there may be a need of a signature-ish win kind of like Ole Miss is in the sense, but probably on different levels. Like a win at Missouri last week would have certainly sufficed for Matt Luke and Ole Miss because in the sense that like like they outside Ole Miss hasn't really beaten anyone they're not supposed to. Like they, the only conference wins they've really had in his time there is 
is Arkansas and Vanderbilt, and then it is interim year they did beat Kentucky and State. I'll give them credit for that. But it kind of seems like the same thing with Jimbo, where they got super close against Clemson last year at home, and obviously you can't indict him for losing games like that, but it feels like they kind of need a signature win down the stretch here, whether it's a Georgia or an LSU or something like that, to kind of really get momentum rolling. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. And, and the Georgia game's beginning to chalk up as one that could be that one. Right. Um, you know, I don't think Georgia has looked stellar all season. They got the big win over Notre Dame, but then they got exposed last week against South Carolina, and that was at home. I mean, it, they're vulnerable at home. You know, Sanford Stadium was rocking when the Irish came to town, but will it get up for that when the Aggies come to town, especially if A&M is 7-3 and three, uh, if they were able to win the next few games heading into that one. And so, yeah, I would, I would say that Georgia could be one that is really kind of a, a tone setter, uh, a springboard in the next year. And then obviously LSU. I mean, the whole thing is that A&M and LSU have been, has been this budding rivalry ever since A&M got back into the SEC. But it wasn't a rivalry until A&M beat LSU last year. And so if it's truly a rivalry, then you would think that maybe some of that really, really, diff- the big difference in LSU just being in a, in a different level this year may be somewhat thrown out the window, and it kind of gives a little more of a level playing field that A&M can keep up with them. I don't think that's going to happen, as of now at least. But if it was a true rivalry, you would think, hey, it's anyone's game in some regard because of that. So definitely one of those two. Um, I don't think Jimbo hasn't really gotten a huge road win yet. And big wins last year were at home against Kentucky and LSU. You know, they played Clemson down to the wire. They beat South Carolina on the road, but South Carolina won that great last year. They only won by three. So definitely... Definitely a road win is what's in in those games against Georgia and LSU are kind of keen up to be the big ones that are remaining. So, Alex, I really appreciate your time. I think that's about all I had for you. Uh, will you be here Saturday? I will. I. I will. Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to this matchup. It should be a fascinating game. Safe travels getting here, and I look forward to seeing you Saturday, man. All right. Thanks for having me on. And that was Alex Miller. I appreciate a minute of his time. Good student reporter. I really enjoyed talking with him. You got probably some, I thought it was some fascinating insight on kind of like Jimbo Fisher and like, you know, I think I asked him about like, can this team actually take off next year or program, I should say. And he was like, that's kind of the seven and a half million dollar question. But some good insight on kind of what they've struggled with this year. They haven't been able to get much of a pass rush. Other than that, they've been pretty solid defensively kind of got an inside look at what Kellen Mond's been dealing with this year and the lack of a run game and all that. And what is a pretty important game for A&M to kickstart the back half of their schedule because they still have to go to Georgia and they have to go to LSU. And, like, they're going to kind of struggle to get to 7-5, and 6-6 six and six if they don't win this. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, Kevin Sumlin got fired for that. <laughs> you know, they're most probably still somewhat on the honeymoon phase. You're saying $7.5 million. Uh, Texas A&M's recruiting has never been an issue. I don't know if they can excuse six and six or seven and five. So uh, tough look right there, especially if they lose Saturday. 
Uh, I figured, you know, if they, they lose Saturday, what, 6-6, and 7-5, six, certainly best case at that point, right? I think 6-6 six and six is because you lose your 3-4. and four, You've got three games in a row against State, UTSA, and South Carolina, which you should win, and hell, you better win because the last two are at UGA and at LSU. Yeah, those are two losses, so... Yeah, so that this is a huge game for them in that sense because really their ceiling now is seven and five. They need to win these next four and then hang on for dear life in the last two games of the season at Georgia and LSU. So they're in kind of a fascinating spot too, which makes this Ole Miss has found itself into some weirdly fascinating matchups this year, despite not being a very good team. It's like last week they kind of had a chance. You didn't really know what Missouri was. You know, if Missouri was a pretender, Ole Miss probably would have beaten them, but I think Missouri's pretty good. And then you kind of find yourself against an A&M team that really kind of needs a springboard after a brutal front half where they, I mean, dear God, they played Clemson, Auburn, and Alabama through the first half of the year. little breaking news that I think is good for baseball. Uh, the Angels have fired Joe Madden. I figured that was coming. I figured as soon as they let him go, that's why they fired Brad Osmus. Yeah, I thought he was either there in New York for him. Um, that, that'll probably put Girardi with the bats, right? I would think if he's not a Cub, but the Cubs seem to be leaning David Ross. Yeah, that's what, that's what the Cubs can do. But, uh, I think it's good for baseball, though. Mike, Mike Trout needs to get into the playoffs, and I think for a while. Uh, Joe Madden is certainly the guy that, uh, that uh, can get them there. But, yeah, you know, I don't want to you know stray from Ole Miss just yet. Look, or, or, or Texas A&M, it's... It, yeah, that's that's the dicey situation over there. Because look, I mean, Jimbo's locked up for eight more years. I mean, this this is this isn't a situation where you're like, well, what else is out there? And and while I guess you know his his athletic director that hired him and is probably his good friend isn't isn't there anymore, um, he ain't going nowhere. So so this has to work. And I think if you're an Texas A and M fan, you probably thought you know coming off that bowl win last year against NC State, this was going to be the tight season then, you know, propels you to the next level for whatever reason. That's not the case. Don't worry, though. If uh, if it doesn't work out with Jimbo, I'm sure A&M will conduct an exhaustive national search. <laughs> anyway. Oh, God. I, I, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, so anyway. Um, <laughs> wonder how they involved the chancellor is with athletics. I don't know. Does A&M yeah, have a chancellor? Do they have, like, a chancellor or a president? Not that it really matters, but, like... I don't know. They got, like, they got a yell leader. He probably just runs it. I think A&M should hire Jeff Vitter. <laughs> yes, because him and Ross would love to work together again. I'm sure Ross would love that. I kind of kid. I think Ross is a smart guy. I think he did a good job here. I'm just kind of poking fun. I, I Ross hope. would... Uh, Ross, they hired Jeff Vitter, and Ross would find out exactly how high uh, Kyle Field is. When he jumped off of it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, not even the amount of money he's making there, which I don't even know the exact amount, could probably keep him from from at least thinking about it if they hired gumballs. Anyway, um, that's about all I've got on that today. We'll get into that some more Friday with Mailback Friday and kind of wrap up some A and M prep. We had a lot of stuff go on in the NFL Monday Night Football. The Lions, well, they probably should have scored more touchdowns and field goals. They got robbed officiating-wise. There were two very phantom uh, hands-to-the-face calls that were fairly atrocious. I say fairly atrocious. They were awful. Uh, the NFL officiating's had a rough go of it this year, and I don't really know why. Yeah, well, I I think it's been heading that way for a while now. They've done nothing to address it. The uh, pass interference, interference reviews are unacceptably bad. Uh, they just don't reverse the calls no matter what 
what should happen or shouldn't happen. Well, because they didn't want to implement the rule. The challenge those anymore. So they didn't want to implement the rule. Bad look for officiating right now. They didn't want to implement the rule. The reason they're yeah. overturning it is almost their form of protest. They didn't want the rule to happen, but they felt like they had to do something. The referees didn't want it, so they're, like, they're not turning overturning anything. Like I think yeah. that was a knee jerk reaction. There needs to be. I wonder if they would even overturn what happened in New Orleans at this point. Yeah, that's a fair point. Maybe I don't. I mean, yeah, that's a decent point. I don't know the answer to that, but like they, it was just a knee jerk overcorrection. But like, why not take something from the AAF? Why not have a sky judge, or why not have a guy? I, I, maybe this would be harder to do during Sundays when there's you know 13 games on as opposed to the standalone. But why not have someone up there confirming or overturning every penalty? It takes they get 60 seconds to look at it or 45 seconds or whatever, and just say, "Yep, no." Why is that that hard? It's a fair question. It is. It is certainly a fair question. Um, the hands of the face, though. I mean, that's going to cost the Lions a playoff spot more than likely, which that just can't happen. Yeah, because the Lions are pretty good. Yeah, like they're not bad. They got a decent defense. Stafford's always been good, but you know, I mean, look, if, if they really needed to win that game, Stafford would have gone down and let. I mean, if they really were going to win that game. Stafford needed to go down and lead one more scoring drive. He wasn't able to do it. It wasn't very good in the second half. But at the same time, they did enough to win the game, or at least give themselves a shot late. And those two hands to the face calls are just kind of absurd. Yeah, and and there's you, you can't go back and reverse it. So um, I don't know. You know, it it. I think they got to do something with officiating, or at some point, it just kind of looks kind of rigged to me. And I know it's not rigged, but my God, it looks that way. Well, yeah, particularly in a game like that, because the drive before you had the the Packers defensive backer safety on the deep ball, pretty much just kind of clubbed the guy across the the chest, and there was no call. But then you call kind of a phantom ticky tack pi against the Lions before that, and then you call the two hands to the face. Like I don't get it. <laughs> so, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Tough look right now. Was I don't know how you miss hands to the face. So you either see it or you don't, right? Yeah, I mean, it either happens or it didn't happen. And clearly there, both times, it didn't happen. And as much as I disagree with Booger McFarlane and don't really like him as a broadcaster, he was roasting the officials, and I was kind of really on board with that. Yeah, he was roasting them like Susie Rules analysts, which I thought was hilarious. Well, I mean, he had every right to be. It was terrible causes. He was like, look, this is going to cost people games. It's going to cost people jobs, and he's not wrong. So, I don't know. Anyway, the Rams made a couple trades yesterday. They traded LaMarcus Joyner to the Ravens and then kind of went young at corner and traded Jalen Ramsey for, I think, two first-round picks and a third-round pick. I mean, I don't, how many times can a team go all in? I, I applaud them for their aggressiveness, but, like, this is like River – I mean, I don't know. This is like Houston Rockets-esque in terms of just kind of continuously reshuffling to try to win. So, I don't know. I like it for them, I guess. They went with a younger corner as opposed to Joyner. But, man, I, I, the, I guess the aggression is refreshing. Yeah, no, they they are certainly not you know brash about about going for it. So good for them. I don't know if Jalen Ramsey can play left guard for them though. I think that's probably where they're kind of weak right now. Yeah, because as much defenses issues as they had, and I think there's value in getting it. Because like you look at what a Marshawn Lattimore did the last couple weeks, like last week what he did to Mike Evans, what he did the week before that to Amari Cooper, and then what he did to DJ Chark, which was. Gardner Minshew's kind of number one weapon. Like, if you can assign a guy to just go shut down another team's best playmaker and just play 10-on-10 after that, 
that's a huge value because it fundamentally changes the way teams play offense. I mean, go look at go look at the the, the games where Jalen Ramsey has been on DeAndre Hopkins and how many times how many fewer times he's been targeted. I mean, it, it changes the way teams play offense. But to your point, I think their issues probably extend beyond that on the other side of the ball. So how much does this actually help them? I don't know. No, that, that's kind of what that, that offense is just not really been the same since the Super Bowl. Um, and I don't know if Belichick and them exposed something or what, but it has certainly been a, a different type of deal since the Super Bowl. Yeah, so I do admire the aggression, though, because the trade deadline, and then not that it's close right now, but the trade, like, you don't see a ton of trades in the NFL, and it kind of gets monotonous in that sense. So I applaud the aggression. I think that's good, but I guess we'll see whether it works or not. Uh, do you, 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 you want our pick records for the week? Yeah, uh, shoot. Podcast brought to you by LBs. I'm so bad at this. Uh, go go see Greg, University Avenue, across from Kroger. We're going to have Greg back on Friday for the picks. Greg's got the picks. Greg's got the meats. Um, go see him. It's the first leg of our LB's Pick'em, but first let's go get the results from last week. But if you want to stop by LB's, they've got, cust- I mean, they've got custom cuts. They've got steaks, sausages. Greg's always kind of cooking up some really, really, really delicious plate lunch. Uh, go see him. He'll get you hooked up. It's grilling season. It's 60 degrees outside and sunny. It's the time to put stuff on the grill. Go let Greg tell you what to put on the grill or at least help you find what you want. He's always got some kind of nice spicy sausage, all kinds of good stuff. Go see Greg across from LB's. What are the results? Uh, so I actually lost Greg's pick, um, so I have to go back in and, and recalculate those. So uh, you went 11-12 and 12 this week, 4-6 uh, and six in college football, and, and or 7-6 and six in college football. Wait, wait. 7-6 and six in the NFL. Four and six in college football. Uh, I went eight and five in the NFL and five and five in college football. Uh, through I guess this is week four. I'm at fifty four and thirty six, and you're at forty six and forty four, too. So we might have to add some games for your sake, bud. I don't know. We still got seven, eight weeks left in some NFL. So we're gonna do like all the bowl games. Yeah, we can do that. We can pretty much do whatever we want. There are no rules here. Um, <laughs> That's true. So I guess to recalculate Greg's. And I'll just kind of announce Greg's record to him on Friday and let him react accordingly. But again, go see him at LB's. They've got all kinds of meats. They've got all kinds of great stuff. Sausages. Go get the jalapeno poppers that are really good. The mushrooms. He's got plate lunches. He feeds the baseball team. He makes all kinds of good stuff on a daily basis. Go see Greg. I'm hungry talking about it. But Greg's got the meat. So we'll get into the back half of the pick'em here in just a second. Or the first half of the pick'em here. Greg's picks on Friday as usual, and then we'll do kind of the meats of the LB's pick them on Friday after Greg. Um, do you want to do the NBA China thing? I find this story fascinating. I don't want to go like too heavily political on it, but it is a fascinating story in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know what the NBA does, so like anything they say is going to be criticized. Um, well, I say that. Anything they say is going to have repercussions one way or the other, so it's kind of just a tough spot, isn't it? Yeah, so basically, for those of you unfamiliar with this at this point, the Hong Kong protests, I guess, have been going on for like, what, three, four years, maybe? I mean, what started was a guy from Taiwan uh, murdered his girlfriend and then fled to Hong Kong, and Hong Kong doesn't have an extradition thing because Hong Kong is, like, free from the rest of mainland China, and then obviously Taiwan, a little bit different, but it kind of sparked a a conversation 
about extradition and extraditing people back to other countries if they committed crimes in those countries. But, of course, you've got this free speech issue with China, and so a lot of people have fled to Hong Kong to have more better human rights and speak out against the government and all that. And so, obviously, you could see what extradition could do to those people and endanger those people. Complicated issue. I'm just giving you some very general background there. I'm not going in the political side of it. That's not really my place. I don't care. But that's kind of the main issue at hand here, and now they don't trust the Chinese government, and they want a full-on democracy. And so that's what they're fighting for, and it's turned into protests, and at some points... I don't want to call them rioters, but the protests have gotten, like, violent. Anyway, Daryl Morey, the Rockets GM, sends out this tweet saying he stands with the people of Hong Kong and stands with democracy, which on its surface is a very noble cause. And, like, obviously you're kind of either siding with democracy or communism here, so there's really only one way to side. But the issue with the NBA, I say there's only one way to side. If you're a communist guy, okay, I, I, I got nothing for you. I don't mean that in a political way, but just like you get it here, common sense, there's one side here. Like what Morey was standing for is the right side, but him taking a public stance while the NBA is in China and really just against China in general, where it's costing the NBA or where the NBA has billions and billions of dollars invested, has created a nightmare. Yep, yep, and and it's a tough situation because I mean, if anybody speaks out against China, they're losing money. Um, they lost, they've lost money. They've lost tons of money from this. But at the same time, like, how much money is human rights worth? So it's a, it's a tough deal for everyone involved, and I understand that. So anybody that, that speaks on it is, is getting criticized one way or the other. Yeah, and so now it kind of, in some ways, it kind of puts, a, like, it kind of reflects a mirror image back to the NBA because the NBA, the other issue they're dealing with from a perception standpoint is they're known as the quote-unquote like woke league that allows their players and coaches to speak out on social issues and the whole like you know Steve Kerr you know craps on every Trump tweet and all of that and they're very outspoken against things going on here, but now you have like actual communism and like very very severe human rights abuses, and Steve Kerr offered no comment. LeBron went as far to say that Daryl Morey was uneducated on the matter and basically said uh, it. He didn't think about how this affects other people when he spoke, which, yikes, that's pretty terrible optics. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you just got to shut up at this point if you're them. And, and I get, you know, that's probably not the best league look either. But in the same brain, like, man, like you, can't, you can't be the guy that tells these people, hey, shut up and dribble. And now that this, this, this situation is going on, you, you want their opinion on everything. So. It's a it's a fine line that they're having to walk. It's, it's a tough it's a tough line, frankly. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of people that are being disingenuous on both sides of this. Oh, 100 percent. That's the way. But that's the way you talk about issues in 2019 on social media, at least. Like, there's no nuance. You're all one way, and you're being disingenuous. Like to your point, there's people being disingenuous where they don't want the players speaking out on social issues, then mad that they don't. But on the other side. Like, LeBron literally said, I mean too much to society to shut up and dribble, and then now when it's costing him money, he has nothing to say. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it's probably just, it would probably been best for LeBron to just be quiet on this one. Uh, because, like I said, there's, what, what does he say that gets people right. that doesn't affect his pocketbook and also, you know, is in support of people? Like, I, it, it's just a situation where, you probably just kind of take it a little bit and keep your mouth shut. Yeah, because what he said was way worse than keeping your mouth shut. I mean, he, he talks about Daryl Moore not being educated and the ramifications it could have on other people. And then he tweets, 
Let me clear up the confusion. I do not believe there's any consideration for the consequences of the tweet or ramifications of the tweet. The well, only not- consequences were that you were going to lose money. Nobody's actually going to be hurt because of the tweet, though, right? Right. I'm not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that. Then he has a second tweet. My team in this league just went through a difficult week. Oh, spare me. I think people need to understand what his tweet or statement can do to others, and I believe no one stopped and considered what would happen, could have waited a week to send it, where that really just makes it sound like LeBron saying, hey, this is a huge pain in my ass. Why did you say this? <laughs> so I That's don't exactly know. what it sounds like. It, it just kind of feels like a, a, the NBA needs to not come out in support of China. So like, I, and I get it. Like, Come out and tell your guys to shut up, but uh, you really can't. You can't support that regime, though, right? That, that, that's been a bad look for them, in my opinion, is, is the support of a, of a communist regime, regime over there in China. Yeah, I mean, it's probably not in their best interest to be doing business with China in general, but again, it's very valuable. I'm not going to tell them who they can and can't do business with, but again, to your point, just like don't side with the communist side. Like Maybe just be quiet and not say anything. Daryl Morey really... really what he was saying was noble and correct, probably. I mean, not probably. It was, but, like, man, he put them in a terrible spot. Has he been fired yet? I figure he's going to be fired. No, I don't think you can fire him, though. For If you're the free speech league, can you really fire him for siding with democracy? Like, uh, that? The, the free speech thing doesn't apply, though. He's not going to jail. He's just getting fired. I mean, I guess, but, like, why, if you're firing him for speaking out against communism, why are you not firing, you know, Steve Kerr for, you know, crapping on Trump or whatever? Like, well... You don't want my opinion on that. Um, well, no, but, I'm not saying one side or another. I'm just saying, like, it, it, that's a hell of a double standard. No, nah, well, because one of them's costing you money. <laughs> like, that, that's the answer to that, though, right? Yeah, I guess that that's fair, but then, I don't know. Complicated deal. Anyway, is there anything else we kind of, lots of stuff going on in the sports world right now. Is there anything else we missed? Uh, no, we got game four of uh, the Astros-Yankees tonight. I kind of think that series is close to being over, though. That was a big win for Houston yesterday. Um, I don't know if you saw the Barstool thing on that, but that was one of the greatest pieces of content I've ever consumed. I was watching it during commercial breaks of radio. Did you see this? There's no way that girl didn't know, like, what was going on, though, right? Like, it, she, she seemed a little, a little bit dumber than she actually was. I mean, maybe in some degrees, like maybe they told her to kind of oversell it, but at the same time, like she, I, I don't think she was very much of a sports fan at all. And, How are we? Well, and and two and two. Of, of and the two. ALCS don't have starting pitchers for tonight. How is that a thing? Wait, what? Neither team has announced the starting pitcher for tonight. Oh, I didn't actually notice that. I don't know. Maybe it's a chess match deal. But also on that barstool thing, I think she was watching it without sound too, which couldn't have helped. <laughs> but I thought that was hilarious. Those dudes have won bet on the game, too. They're all Yankee fans. And they're just having to defer to this poor lady who clearly knows nothing about sports for updates. I thought that was I thought that was hysterical. I, I, I really got a kick. It. Like, if I was a, a true Yankee fan, there's no way I could have done that. I have just walked off. Yeah, I, I just I, I got a really big kick out of that. Anyway, so there's no starting pitchers announced? No, no. Nobody's announced the starting pitcher. Which, that, that, that doesn't seem fair to me. Uh, maybe the teams know, and then if that's the case, that, that that's fine. But if they, if neither teams know who who's starting, that really is a problem for Major League Baseball to me. Yeah, I tend to agree. I uh, that's interesting. I don't. Why, why is that the case? I guess because they've kind of well, gone through I mean, their top three. The the Astros have only used three starting pitchers in the playoffs. They're going to have to use another one tonight. They're not bringing Drinky back on three days. Um, and the Yankees never know who they're starting. 
Tonaco. Uh, you know, they go Tanaka, uh, uh, Paxton, Severino, and they just kind of figure it out. So, uh, but you would think that you'd have a clue by 12 o'clock on game day. Right. So, I don't know. That'll be interesting to watch. On the flip side of things, the Nationals just kind of assaulted the uh, the Cardinals. That series is over in four. And congrats yeah. to the Nationals. They're going to the World Series. You hate, you hate to see that. God, you hate to see that. Uh, anyway. I think uh, that probably should have been the result, though, because I think the Cardinals were not as good as the Braves and probably weren't even the best team in their division. Credit to them. They won the most games. I'm not saying they don't deserve the division title, but I don't think that was a World Series caliber team. That was, yeah, no, God, no. I mean, the Nats are the second-best team in the National League all year, uh, past about May. I mean, they, they, it is what it is. They beat the Dodgers in the five-game series that, that they absolutely deserve to win. Uh, you know, looking back at it, somebody made a good point to me. You gotta give a, look, the Dodgers probably should have won the series. I get all that. The Nationals are playing so well right now. you got to give the Dodgers a little bit credit for not losing that thing in, four, in three or four. Because the Nats would do what they did to St. Louis to a good many teams in Major League Baseball right now. Yeah, that and, team is on fire. And now they get a week to set their pitching, which really kind of gives them a chance, which they're going to be the underdog against Houston or New York. That's just kind of the way it is. But, man, you give them a week off, and you get them to set their rotation to where they're going to go Scherzer, Strasburg, Corbin, like with a week's rest, like that gives them a who, shot. Who do you think they want to play? Like, if you gave David Martinez the, chance, the opportunity to pick, who do you think you pick? I think New York. Yeah, I think so, too. I think they're better than New York. They won't be favored, but I think they're better. They're a better baseball team than New York right now. Now, Houston, I don't think so. But I think if you match, I don't, I don't know how you make the Yankees a favorite over the Nationals right now. Yeah, because I think that Houston's better than New York is, obviously. And the problem with that is, is you run out your three-headed monster of your Washington to where... They got one, too. Yeah, Houston counters with maybe one that's even better. Maybe not quite on the back end at the third guy with the way Grinky's pitch. I don't know. But, like, the Yankees don't have that kind of pitching. And to whereas you got three really good pitchers, that you could take them up against the Yankees lineup. Yeah. I mean, in your, you know, before that, I go 7.2 and gives up one hit. Just kind of crazy. Yeah. That team two weeks ago from yesterday was down 3-1 to one in the eighth of an elimination game. And now they're going to the World Series. Pretty crazy. Baseball is an insane sport. Playoff baseball is the best. If you disagree, you're wrong, and don't listen to this podcast. Um, I'm only halfway joking. Pick, pick a World Series winner, winner right now. Washington. Well, I think I agree. I think I agree. Um, just, yeah, they, they, they've got that mojo right now. So let's get into the front of this LB's Pick'em. This Pick'em is brought to you by LB's. Go see Greg, cross from University Avenue. He's got the meats. I am hungry as is, so uh, doing this ad is making me very hungry. He's got all kinds of sp- spicy sausages, all kinds of different types of sausages, custom cuts. He has plate lunches every day. He's got daily specials. He's got fillets, all kinds of stuff. Go see Greg, cross from University Avenue. Let's get into the front half of this pick So I guess let's just go with the Thursday night football. I don't even know what it is. I haven't checked this week. Okay, this line is going to shock you. Just, I, I tell you what. You, you don't know who plays on Thursday night, right? Wait, in the NFL? Yeah. Uh, no, I think I do. It's, uh, it is... No, I don't, actually. Okay, all right. I will, well, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to read you the game. You tell me what you think the line is, okay? okay. Kansas City at Denver. Uh, Kansas City minus four? 
wow, you were you thought it was a lot less than I did. I thought it was going to be minus eight or nine. Uh, Kansas City minus two. So, I think, oh, wow, that's actually lower than I thought. So, two things here. The Chiefs have looked very human offensively, and their defense has issues. Two, Joe Flacco's not any good, but the Broncos' defense is really good. And to be fair, they're two and four, and they're a kicker and a really shitty call away from being four and two. They are, but that doesn't mean they're any good either. I mean, no, but they're better than two and four. That defense is really, really, really good. It's a shame they can't get anything offensively going because that defense is still nasty. It's in Denver, and the Chiefs are kind of broken right now. So I don't necessarily – that the two is low in my opinion, but that doesn't necessarily shock me that badly. That shocked me. I'm laying them. Good God. I don't, I'm laying them and counting my win there. Fair enough. I just I, watching Kansas City play offense the last three weeks is heavily concerning to me, and their defense already isn't any good, and they're not very good against the run. And so, do I, like, do you see a world where Philip Lindsay goes for one seventy five and they shorten the game and keep Mahomes off the field? Sure, but I tend to agree. I still think the line's low. Uh, I'll go you, for the pick. Though I'll go Kansas City. Okay, you you want to pick the baseball game tonight? Yeah, that's fair. I'll go New York. We don't have starting pitchers, though. Can we do that? Yeah, I don't care. I'll go New York. I don't think they can go down 3-1. I'm going Houston. I don't even know if this thing goes back to Houston. Um, let's see. All right, we got we got two Thursday. Well, we got one Thursday night football game. Uh, Stanford minus seven hosting UCLA. Stanford playing better. I don't know what to make of Chip Kelly. I think that win at Washington State was a fluke, Stanford. Yeah, you think I'm picking Chip Kelly to win a road game on the farm. He lost to Monty. I'm, I'm taking Stanford there. Oh, so, uh, they, oh that, that, so that game's at Stanford. Yeah, even more yeah, so. I was yeah, picking them as a Palo Alto. Okay. Um, is that all we got? Yep, that's it pretty much. I mean, there's some, there's a Sun Belt game, but I don't feel like picking that. So, Fun Belt, uh, let's do it. Okay, it's tonight. Uh, let's see. Uh, Troy is laying 16 and a half against South Alabama in Troy. I'm thinking it's Jaguars. Yeah, whatever, Jaguars. I know nothing about either of those teams. <laughs> That's what I was got to say. Um, Jordan Tamu is now in the XFL. Good for him. I'll be interested to see yeah, that. I'm going to tell a good many guys get drafted into the uh, XFL. I think yeah, the quarterback that play in that league is going to be pretty good. Yeah, I think the quarterback plays in that league is going to be okay. I'm interested to see what he does. Yeah. No, there, there are some, like, Cardell Jones in that league. Uh, there, there are some good quarterbacks in that league. Yeah, so that's about all we got for today. We'll be back on Friday with the People's Holiday Mailbag Friday. We will have the rest of the LBs pick them one more time. Go see Greg across from University. I, I always say that. Across from Kroger on University Avenue. Plate lunches, custom cuts, fillets, all kinds of sausages, all kinds of sides, jalapeno poppers, mushroom. Greg's got all kinds of good stuff. It's grilling season. The weather's getting cooler. If you're going to go watch football in the Grove, college football Saturday, go get go let Greg get you set up with all the best things to put on the grill. So go see Greg's. We'll have him for the Pick'em on Friday. We'll have Mailbag Friday. Send me your questions. Tweet me your questions. Email me your questions. Uh, I've had a lot of people DM me about the show. My DMs on Twitter are open, so if you have thoughts on anything we've talked about, feel free to shoot me a DM. always like the back and forth. Probably not giving you my phone number, but aside from that, DM's always a good place to go. I had a guy uh, send me a long message yesterday that I'm about to reply to. He said he likes the show, then offered like 
a long bit of thoughts on the quarterback situation. So always enjoy the interaction. Like and subscribe to the podcast. Rate and review the podcast. Give us five stars. You can say anything in the comments. You got anything else? Otherwise, we'll be back Friday. Nope. Sounds good. All right. We will do this party again on Mailbag Friday. Thanks for listening. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.